All right, so we're going to do something like a, an interview format in a little bit with Matt asking us questions. Um, and we're going to be looking at the Holy Spirit this week and a little next week. We can't cover it all this week because the Holy Spirit's a complex topic, but in two weeks. <laughs> all of it. Yeah, so easy. Um, so uh, just to map where we are in this class, we started with creation. Uh, things are good. Uh, we uh, humans were in intimacy with God and, um, and in harmony with one another. Sin comes in and distorts uh, the good experience that was going on. Sin not only is these actions that we do, but it has this enslaving, corruptive, uh, cancerous kind of power. Um, and sin distorts then the, the good relationship between humans and God and between humans and one another. Uh, we saw in Israel how God calls Abraham and then uh, his descendants Israel and gives them a law. This seems to be something like an early phase of God's restoration project. Not the complete phase, uh, but there's this kind of tentative uh, aspect to the law. It's, it's taking them a step towards restoration where God is in greater intimacy with his people. And ideally, if they're keeping the law, they are in greater harmony with one another and the created order. Uh, but uh, towards the end of Israel's story, you get prophets uh, like Jeremiah um, talking of a new covenant. The Torah would be the old covenant. And a new covenant is coming where, where God will dwell in greater intimacy with his people. And they will have an increased ability to obey him. Um, and uh, there will be greater forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant that is prophesied. Uh, and then we have uh, Jesus there at the beginning of the New Testament. And uh, he lives a life where he is empowered by the Spirit. And we see this life that is empowered by the Spirit where he goes around and he is, uh, in a sense, bringing new creation wherever he goes. Uh, restoring people socially, the outcast bringing them in physically, uh, the lame, the deaf, the blind, um, and spiritually, forgiving sins and drawing people back uh, to God. And nearing his death, um, uh, he draws the disciples together uh, and he breaks bread with them, and then he takes the cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. The same exact language that Jeremiah points to. A new covenant is coming. Uh, and here Jesus is saying, this is the blood of the new covenant. Through Jesus' uh, sacrificial death and resurrection, a new covenant um, is on the scene now. Uh, and, and what that means then, as Jesus ascends, when Jesus leaves the disciples, um, I don't know how to make complete sense of the ascension. I don't know if anyone does um, know exactly what's going on there. Um, but he leaves where he is here and is reunited to the Father. Uh, how he kind of moves between those dimensions, I'm guessing it's a TARDIS. Uh, I'm not positive. Um, a handful of you know what that is. Um, uh, but as, as he's reunited, it's not a sense in which God is now absent uh, but as he ascends, he ascends so he might send the Spirit and be, uh, have even greater presence among us. So as, as the church is part of the new covenant, new Israel with new covenant, uh, um, Jesus uh, sends the Spirit, and the Spirit then is meant to, um, to overcome uh, or to help us overcome the power of sin that had been enslaving and corrupting creation, uh, to help us to live as Christ, uh, to uh, help us experience the love of God, all those things that the new covenant uh, that Jeremiah prophesied about. Uh, and then we look forward to the fullness of that. So you're going to say a few things to me about the Spirit before... Um, 
I guess the only other things I would emphasize that Josh hasn't already, um, in terms of the kind of unfolding of the story, we've also talked about uh, these in terms of theodramatic acts. So act one is creation and our dwelling with God in the garden, um, in Shalom, state of Shalom with all. Then comes the fall when we are expelled from the garden and our only access to God is through the temple presence, through the Shekinah, the special indwelling of a, a time and place where God comes and is present to people, but it's in a kind of tabernacling presence, right? And then we have Act 3, the incarnation, where God becomes flesh and walks among us, and we are able to commune with God in that way. And then we're moving into Act 4, pneumatological presence, Pneumatological being the fancy word for of the spirit, right? Um, and so what's happening here, um, I think we can think of having three aspects. One is that the pneumatological is always Christological, which means anything that is of the spirit always needs to be tied to Christ, what we see happening in Christ. That's the key to understanding the work of the spirit. I think we, we get into trouble when we end up trying to kind of parse those things out and say, what's the Spirit doing on its own? The Spirit's always uh, doing work in conjunction with Christ and the Father. Um, and so I can say more about that, and I think we probably will as we discuss. But um, the second is that um, as part of that Christological work, the Spirit brings the church to birth. So the Spirit is what is uh, what uh, gives birth to this new community, Christ's body on earth which is also connected, remains connected to Christ's uh, personal body, individual body. And then third is that the Spirit is given to enable us to live by the rules of God's arriving kingdom. So the Spirit that empowers us is the same one that empowered Christ, which is a remarkable thought. Right? Um, so, again, I can unpack any of that, but that's just sort of the, I would say, that's, that's the sort of setup for the conversation. So th this might not be a, it won't be a neat lecture class. You know, you had those professors in high school or in university, and some of them were wonderful to take notes from, right? <laughs> you, you could just sit there and put your mind on autopilot, and they would tell you where to change Roman numerals, and they would put lists on the board. And then you probably also had professors like me who don't do that. And you just can't predict whether you should write this down or not. So, but is it going to be on the test? Uh, that's always the big question. So the good news for us is there's no test, so you don't have to take notes. But hopefully, um, what we do today will will, will get you re-engaged with some of the the big questions, both maybe at a high level, but also at a practical level, about one of the things that I know in the denomination that I grew up in, the the Churches of Christ in the South was always uh, kind of untouchable. It was, a, it was a tar baby that we really didn't want to deal with. Um, and so my, what I see my job today is to pitch some of, some of the, the questions, softball fashion, I guess, at the theologians in the room to see if they can help us start thinking about this issue as we've, as we've grown up with it and as, as we move forward with it. I have to say, maybe by way of background, when I grew up, when I was in my formative years in the mid-1970s, my father happened to be an elder at, at a church, small church in South Carolina. 
And back in the 70s, the big issue, as I understood it in our church, was um, the charismatic movement. The charismatic movement, if you remember what that means. The speaking in tongues stuff. And, and I remember my father and some of other elders of his church taking themselves to, uh, I think it was Freed Hardeman, for a seminar one summer to get the answers, to, to figure out how to deal with with that, and they came back and they had the answers. Um, I didn't pay a lot of attention then, but I do know that as I grew up, in a very simplistic fashion, this is sort of what I came to understand, is that yes, we believe in the Holy Spirit, let's talk about something else. <laughs> and if the, if the question persisted was yes, and, and the Holy Spirit, pretend this is the Bible, is right there safely captured in the covers of that book and those red and black letters. Next question, please. Uh, and practically the only time we mentioned it was when we baptized somebody because we knew it was important then, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We never left that out, or we, or we did it again to make sure. I'm, I'm joking a little bit, but, but it was a very difficult topic for us to deal with. I know now, I think, that because our tradition emerged in in the age of rationalism, where we don't like to talk about things like spirits or holy ghosts, that word has a negative connotation for rationalists, that, that made it uncomfortable for us to deal with. And our usual way of answering questions about the text, which is to proof text everything, is particularly unhelpful when it comes to the Holy Spirit, because there are too many different versions of what the Holy Spirit might look like, feel like, and act like, for us to be able to concretely package the Holy Spirit as either a personality or rather as a figure of speech. And so that's why I have a lot of questions, always have had, about the Holy Spirit. So what we think we'll do today is I'll pitch some of the questions to them um, and I apologize ahead of time if they seem simplistic or, or, um, or blasphemous. That's another one of those big questions we worried about. That one unforgivable sin, which is blasphemy, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But here are some of the questions, so we'll see how they go. Um, so here's one of my questions. You know, sometimes it seems like we deal with the Holy Spirit as, as the optional piece of the Trinity, right? I, we get God the Father, right? Distant from us, over everything, and Creator. I get Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. God made man who dwelt among us. We could see and touch Him, like Thomas put our finger through Him. I get that. But the Holy Spirit, are we to understand the Holy Spirit as a, as a personality? Or is it rather an idea? Is it rather like a... Is it, is it more like, instead of a person, is it more like a force? Like electricity, as opposed to thunder and light? What, how, how do you... What's a, is there a short-ish <laughs> way of helping us understand what we mean when we talk about the Holy Spirit? We do personality, we do Sure. All right, so... Um, several 
people that I'm familiar with anyway, do highlight how the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is described as both a person and a power. So as a person, um, not as in like flesh and blood person, but, uh, and here's a definition of person, someone who is self-aware, capable of cognition, has a capacity to relate to other beings, and possesses recognizable traits of character. So not flesh and blood person, but person. Uh, so in the New Testament, we get the Holy Spirit described as bearing witness, as teaching, speaking, testifying, making known, deciding, and leading. Things sound like something a person would do. But we also have descriptions of the Holy Spirit as something like a power, described actually as power, as a first fruits, as a seal, as a pledge. Uh, and so uh, something in the tension here seems to be important. My guess is that we typically overemphasize the power aspect to the neglect of the person aspect. And I don't know if you want to say something in a minute about the importance of the personhood of the Spirit and why that matters. Um, but I think uh, holding on to this complexity of person slash power is probably important um, rather than highlighting one at the exclusion of the other. So maybe uh, how light can be waves or particles. I think I'm right there. Uh, and to only emphasize one or the other is not to really describe light well or to think about thinking. Is it a mental process? Is it a physical process? Well, yes. Um, so it's kind of both. And I think both uh, matter. You want to say something about more to that? And um, I think when it comes to the question of um, what is the role of the Spirit in, and is it as important as the Father and the Son's role and how do we know? I think what's really important to remember is what Josh is pointing out, that the Spirit does a specific sort of work. So in redemptive history... Um, you can think of it in terms of each member of the Trinity, and this is what Christians discern looking back at what happened in the New Testament, you know, in that era, and they're reflecting upon that and coming up with the doctrine of the Trinity. They're saying, well, it seems like there's this certain sort of work that's always happening in the life of God. The Father is doing something like planning and electing. Uh, the Son is doing something like accomplishing redemption within history, within creation itself. And the Spirit is always applying that redemption to the hearts of believers. Um, another way of thinking of that is uh, the way it's framed in, in Romans 8, which is that the Spirit is creating sonship within us. Um, the Spirit is uh, groaning with creation in anticipation of the revelation of the children of God. So there's this sense in which the creation's always at work within... Well, the Spirit works within creation to form it into the likeness of the Son. So um, I think it's just important to think about the specific work that the members of the Trinity are doing. Uh, that we, if we don't have the Spirit doing its specific work, then we don't have Christ's empowerment for his ministry. And so I think when we cut off the Spirit, we're not thinking about that role, the role in Christ's ministry. So to kind of come at that from a slightly different direction, another one of the tensions I've felt trying to get my head around the Holy Spirit is the tension between is, is what does the Holy Spirit feel like? I'm, I'm putting that word in, in quotation marks with my fingers right there. Is the Holy Spirit a thing we feel? Or, and this is my experience of it in the church I grew up in, it's a useful concept for us to explain 
what's going on. It's more of an abstract idea rather than something that, that actually physically touches me. And it's confusing to me because I know people that I admire deeply and trust a great deal who use both ends of that spectrum. So, simple softball question. And so, what does the Holy Spirit feel like if it's given to all baptized believers at the point of baptism? How do I know I have it if, if I you don't, don't know you don't have it? Say so what? So if you don't know, you don't have it. So <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, do you want to take some? It, it is funny, but but I, but I also do think that's a question a lot of us deep down sort of have. Do I have it or not? Another related question: Does it, is it like the weather? Do I have good days and bad days with the Holy Spirit? Does it come and go? Sometimes it looks that way in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. The Spirit shows up and Peter does a miracle. And then he's just Peter again. So how does, how do you, what is it, to what extent is it experiential as opposed to intellectual? Um, <clears throat> so I think it's, again, always good to start with Scripture and answering these questions about what are we supposed to, like, anticipate that the Spirit's presence would be? What, it, what would it feel like? Um, in the context of what happens at Pentecost, we of course have these miraculous expressions, uh, this specifically speaking in tongues, okay? So um, it's debated whether or not that was uh, ecstatic speech or because, you know, they're filled with new wine, means they're speaking in ways we can't understand, or is this each hearing in their own language, which is also affirmed. And regardless, I think what we can see here is uh, what's happening uh, what the prophet Joel says is going to happen. In the last days it will be, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Uh, so there's this sense in which uh, there is a kind of inbreaking of the future, this future when God will be all in all. And so what we have here is an image of uh, either way, whether that's ecstatic speech or speaking in tongues, where all can hear the ling you know, in their own language, uh, there is this new reality breaking in. And I think we can see the miraculous acts of the Spirit. That way, I'd like to hear what Josh has to say about that. But throughout Acts, uh, it's much like Christ's healing ministry. There's a way in which what's happening there is uh, a sign of this is God's reign. This is what it looks like when God's reign breaks into the world, is the healing of all uh, kind of on all levels of illness, so a holistic, uh, you know, body, spirit, soul. So um, I guess all of that to say, other images in the New Testament that we have of the Spirit's work aren't as flashy. They're more about, uh, you know, formation and virtues, the fruits of the Spirit. And into the life of the, as the life of the church unfolds, um, you really don't have this emphasis on miraculous expressions of the Spirit. I mean, you might have some in terms of prophesying, but you don't have, um, in the early, you know, in the, say, second, third century church, you don't have a lot of emphasis on miraculous healings and that sort of thing. The presence of the Spirit is all about regeneration through sanctification. So um, it's all about sustaining the church's life. It's all about forming us into the likeness of Christ. So how do we know we have the Spirit? I mean, I think just the fact that we have the desire to worship. So if we have the desire to be in the presence of God, if we have the desire to submit our lives uh, to be formed in the likeness of Christ, that's a sign of the Spirit 
calling us to that. That's the, the, the way God works on our desire, drawing us to God. So I think if we hold on to the idea of the Spirit as something of a, of a person and that um, we might think about how we feel or experience the Spirit in relational terms then uh, might be one way of, of looking at this, that um, there will be sometimes an emotional experience um, where we feel comforted, uh, we feel peace or perhaps joy. Uh, there might be um, uh, also kind of mental experiences where we are, truths are brought to mind. Uh, we have the mind of Christ we get from Paul. So it's shaping the way we think. Um, and it's lived as well, shaping how we, we act. So j- with those different expressions of the Spirit, we, I think about uh, my relationship with, with my wife that... Um, we are always in relationship. Sometimes I can really feel the emotional connection. Uh, and other times, you don't always have that strong kind of you know, butterfly emotional connection. It doesn't mean we're not connected. It just means that as our relationship with everyone, there's, there's kind of ebbing and flowing with our kind of um, tangible experience of these things. Um, so some of the, the most wonderful uh, Christian people who would seem to be most in touch with the Spirit go through periods where the Spirit's presence is not <coughs> that felt, uh, where, the, where God seems somewhat absent. Um, and that seems to be uh, where the Spirit is, in a sense, hidden as a way of drawing these people into deeper relationship with the Father uh, and with the Son. So, yes, we feel the Spirit. Yes, the Spirit shapes our thinking and shapes our actions, but our, our ability to sense Maybe our sense of the Spirit might ebb and flow rather than thinking that the Spirit is coming and going. Our sense of the Spirit might come and go. And, and something else I would add is that in, in the New Testament and in the, throughout the life of the church, that the presence of the Spirit is always communal. Hmm. So it always is forming us for life together rather than just these individual expressions of right. the Spirit. So I think that's really key as well. Because... For example, when I'm not feeling, like when my faith feels weak, um, one way I know the Spirit is still present is because of all of you, mm-hmm. right? The way you minister to me. So I think that's really important. We tend to individualize it too much. So I, I think what I hear you saying is that a better way for us to imagine the Spirit than the way sort of I grew up trying to imagine the Spirit is that it's, it's kind of a both and. It's, it's, it's more complex. That sometimes... It's, it's almost as if the Spirit is concretely felt. We have sometimes those moments. Mm-hmm. At other times, we don't feel the Spirit. That doesn't mean there's no Spirit. It just means yeah. almost like a hibernation kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. The trees that we see at Radnor Lake are dead. They're still alive. They just don't look like it right now because it's that season. Is, mm-hmm. is that accurate? Mm-hmm. And, that, and that the Spirit looks like many different things. It, it can look like someone speaking in tongues, or a miracle, or a good day, or a nice song, or in hindsight, the recognition that we've been blessed, even though we didn't know it at the time. Yeah. And it can be that moment when on a cold and wet Wednesday night when we're wondering why we showed up. Um, other people 
say they're glad to see us. That's mm -hmm. I mean, am I right in that's yeah. how it might work communally sure. sometimes? Yeah, I just think we should always think of the Spirit's work as the work of Christ. And it's the work of God's... It's The, the Spirit is a, a down payment, so to speak, of our, this future glory that we will experience when we dwell with God, where God is all in all. And so the trickiness about talking about the Holy Spirit is that it can slip into something really abstract and nebulous. And does it just mean something that feels good or that, mm -hmm. you know... Is it just life? Is it, you know? But if you tie it to what's happening in, in Christ's life, Christ's ministry, and then also see the Spirit of God at work in the narrative of Israel, what, you know, it's driving them to be is a, a priesthood, a priestly nation that does the work of God in the world. Then we see, okay, so the Spirit is always up to something pretty specific. It's always doing a specific sort of work. It may be at work beyond the church in all sorts of ways, and we should anticipate that even, but um, it's it's not just a nebulous sort of feel-good, or I, what I tell my students, it's not just the force from Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's also not, and this was the way, another way it, it sort of got explained to me, not, on, not intentionally, but it was almost as if the Holy Spirit retired shortly after Pentecost. Mm -hmm. it, it, it had its job to do, it, it had its career, miraculously, and, and then it's it's still around, but it's sort of retired from active duty. Mm -hmm. So what you're suggesting is no, that's that's not at all what's going on. It's, the spirit is is as ever always operating at different times, at different places, and different people, in different ways. Most of which we never see, some of which we may never personally experience. But that's the way the spirit has worked. And continues to work. Am I responsible? Yes, and to the last part about most of which we'll never see, maybe some of which we'll not be aware of. Um, we may be looking at it and not know it's right in front of us. Um, we're saying it, you could also say he when talking about the spirit. This is part of the problem with power and person. You can speak of the spirit with a kind of personal he pronoun or the generic it. Um, as I'm hearing us saying it a lot, I think. Oh. That's a little taboo buzzers going off in my head. Um, so you mentioned at the beginning that the Church of Christ and the more rational, um, typically rational uh, denominations tend to want to box the Spirit or keep the Spirit between the pages of Scripture because he's, he's so hard to pin down and to categorize in neat ways. Um, so that's, that's one temptation. The other temptation is to move uh, to the kind of hyper-charismatic side where, um, where the focus is on this highly individualistic experience of, of the Spirit. Um, and it's going to be you know, me and my experience, and it's going to be um, always this like great bubbling over. It only happens to people who already have those kind of personalities, uh, right? And, and it can lead others to look and think, oh, that must be what it looks like to be in touch with the Spirit, but because I don't have this, you know, super wonderful, warm, friendly, ecstatic relationship, then somehow I must be out of touch with the Spirit. Whereas, um, there may be those exper those charismatic experiences. I think there are those charismatic experiences, but as Lauren keeps pointing us back to, those are not an end in themselves. The goal is not to have these experiences, but these are meant to draw us into greater Christ-likeness. 
So if these experiences are shaping us to know we are loved by God uh, and are shaping us to live in cruciform, loving ways, then that's a, a better sign of the Spirit. But if it's simply causing us to be more narcissistic and uh, we're using my, my this bubbly experience of the Spirit to do whatever I want and, uh, or as a power move, the Spirit tells me this, and therefore you can't question it, that's highly problematic. Um, so, yeah, continuously bringing this back to what has the Spirit revealed to the community of Christians through the primary revelation of Scripture? Uh, and how do our... What, we, we're always discerning. Uh, discerning in community. Is this the Spirit working through us? Well, if it's leading us to be narcissistic, no. If it's leading us to go against Scripture, no. Is it leading us into a greater intimacy with Christ and one another and greater sacrifice and love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Then probably so. And if we happen to be wrong, it's not too bad. Um, does that even get to your question? Or do I just... Yeah, yo, I, think it's, uh, I think another, another element in my experience, too, might have to do with language. You because know, we all understand that... <clears throat> Our preferred term is Holy Spirit. We all know that Holy Ghost used to be the term we found. And I think, uh, for better or for worse, the difference between those two words also gives rational, rationalistic people issues. We don't believe in ghosts. It's easier to believe in spirits, especially if we sort of figuratize mm -hmm. the word spirit. Um, and I think sometimes that that too might might lead us to keep discussions about the Holy, the Holy Ghost, right? that's almost always a marker that you're Pentecostal. Right? Church Christers would rather say Holy Spirit. That's a little safer word. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I think that might have something to do with it. And it's always hard, I think when you're talking about Scripture, it's, it's, it's important to remember that Scripture is how we try to put into words what we have come, what we've experienced about God, what we've come to understand about God, it's how we try to communicate that to other people. And using human language is difficult. You mentioned we were saying it about the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's the problem of English. We never developed a non-gendered personal pronoun. We only have the impersonal it. And that's why we have the problem of inclusive language, which most other countries don't have, because they have inclusive language naturally. We naturally don't. So that's, I mean, I'm an English professor, so those language things. So I have a, so here's another question. Why do you think, well, here's another comment. I think it's also important to remember that in the New Testament world, the, the Greco-Roman world, and especially the Roman side of that, in Western Christianity with its, its Latin heritage, the Roman people as a civilization were, were highly superstitious in the sense that they adamantly believed in ghosts. They believed that the dead could come back. Right. Sometimes they're good ghosts, like Casper, right? usually the spirits of ancestors who would come back and bring good news or give you a good warning. They also believed that there were bad ghosts. Um, that you had to not believe because they were just trying to scare you or they were trying to deceive you. And if you read Latin literature, ghosts show up all the time. They were a people, even though they were great civil engineers and invented concrete that would harden underwater, which we still struggle with, 
They absolutely believed in the supernatural. And I, I think sometimes when I read the New Testament, it's important to remember that in a world like that, using that language makes sense to them. In a post-scientific world like ours, it can be really off-putting. Because we, we don't tend to assume that ghosts are part of reality. Does that make sense? I think that's, that's part of my struggle. So here's another question. Why do you think um, our church has been so reluctant to talk about the Holy Spirit in a, in a proactive way? We're really comfortable talking about atonement and sin and baptism. We're really comfortable, sort of, talking about the Trinity. But the Holy Spirit is the last person of the Trinity we really want to talk about. Why do you think we've, as a, as a denomination, been so reluctant to, to really roll up our sleeves and deal with it? Um, <clears throat> well, you touched on it earlier when you said that we, we were born out of a rationalist movement. And so there is this emphasis on the things that we could wrap our heads around, you know. Uh, and so by virtue of that, I mean, there was a little bit of, uh, there, there is some conflict at the, of course, the beginning of our movement with the more kind of the free church aspect of it that was more attuned to the spirit probably. But um, I think uh, it, it's, it's just, what's worth noting is that we're not alone in that struggle. I mean, the spirit was the last member of the Trinity to be recognized as equally God. Um, and there's all this language in scripture about the spirit working within us, but um, it's, it's more nebulous than the others. And so I think the reason why talking about the Holy Spirit is always makes us a little more nervous is because it's, uh, it's, uh, it's harder to put boundaries around and it's harder to predict. And so when you start saying we're going to allow the spirit, we're going to open our lives up to the spirit to inspire us to do, you know, to maybe move and change and grow, that, sh that always butts up somewhat against established uh, institutions and the things that we're used to doing. So I think there, there's just always a tension throughout Christian history between the institution and the, what's a little bit more of a charismatic expression, <coughs> right? It's a control um, issue? Maybe so, but I don't think that it's, I don't think uh, we should think of institutions equal bad and spirit equals good in this equation. I think that it's actually, there's a healthy kind of productive there's something great that happens when you hold those things together so that the institution stays, it, it breathes and it stays alive and it can grow and adapt. Um, and then also, it's what Josh touched on, appeals to the spirit don't need to just kind of fly off into the wild blue yonder, right? They need to stay rooted in, because uh, what the spirit's always doing is forming us in the likeness of Christ. And that's, that's not very flashy a lot of times. That's just to kind of, that means, you know, showing up at church and being kind to people and doing the hard, costly work of discipleship throughout the week. And so um, it's good to come back to the rules in that sense. Mm -hmm. All right, no more softballs. <laughs> well, yeah. the, the, can, but we're on that topic of the expression of the Spirit in, the, in Acts, and then once the institution of the church came about, things seem to have changed. Why is that? Or... Has it changed? Is there still that those expressions of the spirit? Yeah. You probably know that history better than I do. I've just talked a lot. So oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think 
even surveying scripture, there seems to be moments where um, God's miraculous or kind of particularly supernatural presence shows up. Uh, so it's not as though all through the Old Testament, you know, you, God is doing these, you know, ten or ten plagues kind of thing. Uh, uh, so there are kind of these pivotal moments, uh, and I think um, for whatever reason, uh, that obviously that happens at the beginning of the church and in Jesus' life, um, and there does seem to be some sense in which there is an ongoing the more supernatural feel. Maybe it's charismatic, maybe occasional healings, but not in that same, you know, not to that same degree. And I think we can only speculate there. Uh, My own speculation would be that it's part of maturing. Mm -hmm. We have a honeymoon phase with our spouses or whatever where that's a place where, you know, you develop and you grow, but if you stay in that, it's maybe not healthy. If the church is always in this, uh, this place, it may not give space to to do the, the dirty, hard work of discipleship uh, when it's not flashy and pretty. and That's my yeah. guess of why that's... That's what, that's what Augustine said, something like that. That it was about that the early uh, miraculous expressions are about establishing the church, and then after the church is established, uh, what you need to sustain it is uh, the text and the sacraments. And so that's the Spirit works through those means primarily now, in, in drawing the life of the body together. Maybe the other flip side of this is as the church is spreading to the global south, mm-hmm. you are seeing more of the supernatural show up as the church is kind of growing and planting there. Also because that they're open to it and we're a little more close and sometimes you don't get what you don't expect um, and they might get what they expect. So it could be two-sided to this. Uh, it's it's established more, and we also are not looking for it. It's not established elsewhere, and they're also open to it. So, it could be someone who lived through the '70s uh, obviously experienced this. It seemed to be the fascination with just the tongues. That, yeah. That, that typically was the, mm-hmm. and I think it was a an effort on people. They wanted to be spiritual. They yeah. Wanted, they wanted to have some kind of experience that proved they, that they were really yeah. religious. Yeah. And yet, tongues were evident in Acts, but also healings and mm-hmm. prophecy and all the other gifts were there too. But back to your point about Peter, Peter, though he possessed the power to raise people from the dead, mm-hmm. had to struggle with his own understanding. Yeah. And Paul had to buffet his body and deal with, the, with his own issues. Yeah. So when you get back to Galatians 5, if you want to know if you have the Spirit, you love people, mm-hmm. you have self-control, you have these characteristics that are from God. Yeah. And uh, that may take a lifetime to struggle mm-hmm. with, with one or more of those. Yeah, yeah, that's 1 Corinthians 13, right? If you have the tongues of men and angels but don't have don't love. Have then, yeah. You don't, you don't have um, So it's, it's, it seems to be a means to an end. I think of the charismatic wave, and I could have bad history here, but... Part of the, the positive fruit that came from something like that was to establish to, you know, upper class white and lower class black Christians that the spirit, the same spirit is in both. And so you can't, how can you, you know, continue to uphold these kind of divisions when, so there's a, a very, um, very great fruit that can come out of those charismatic expressions. But that's, the end goal is not, man, I have this great experience, but this experience leads to deeper community. Right. 
I'm thinking, and this is a way of trying to tie this back into today's sermon, but I, I think there may be two moments in Scripture where we can sort of see that spectrum that you've described about how the Spirit works, operate. At one end, I'm thinking about Cornelius when he has a vision. Right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it looks miraculous, but, but for Cornelius, it's really disoriented. Because Cornelius knows what Scripture says, and what he's what the Spirit leads him to see is, oh, it's different than you thought. But for today's sermon, with the story of Anna, you know, who's been waiting 80-something years, and she walks into the temple again after 80 years of days walking the temple, and she sees what she sees, and all of a sudden, everything makes sense now. It's not what she thought, but it is what she hoped for. It just doesn't look the way she thought, but but she sees it, and that, that sense of joy is as much an experience of the Spirit, mm-hmm. what makes her a prophet. She says what she now sees as that miraculous vision that mm-hmm. Peter had. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, we can see both of those as these are two different ways that the Spirit can work. I'm um, guessing in the hindsight of the afterlife that some of the people uh, who have lived quiet lives of service, we will realize those people were the most in touch, most filled with the Spirit, and we didn't have eyes to see. One more, one more, and then we'll probably have to quit. Um, I, I think Jesus lays it out for us when he says, many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not, the big three of the charismatic mm-hmm. movement, prophesy, heal, and word miracles. Mm-hmm. So, um, coming out of the closet, I came out of the charismatic movement. I would call myself a charismatic. And yet, I know that those things, those signs, are to do the things and to help us do the things that are on the final exam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Poor, sick, those are to, to empower us to do the works of God in the world, not to be power tools in our garage that we turn on and brag about. And that's yeah. what's happened in a lot of cases. But when they're used to empower our ministry, crazy stuff happens, good stuff mm-hmm. happens, really good stuff happens. You go, wow. That was God working through me, and it's a humbling, mm-hmm. not an arrogance yeah. producing. Yeah, that's good. I like that reference to the, the real final exam. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank y'all for being here. It's time. Yeah.